right on the nail with Chris Wright. Hi, I'm Chris Wright and welcome to Right on the Nail. Each week I'm joined by those in the know to discuss politics, media, business, sports, entertainment and lots more. And today we're going to be discussing almost everything on that particular agenda. We have a fantastic lineup for our News Roundtable episode. Joining me today are Vincent Moss, writer, commentator, and UK Music Communications Director, Jonathan Sakadoti, broadcaster and commentator, and Rachel Wearmouth, Senior Political Correspondent at The Daily Mirror. It's great to have you all here. Right on the Nail with Chris Wright. On what has been a fairly momentous day because we received the result of the North Shropshire by-election during the middle of the night. Rachel, what does it all mean? Um, well, it means a, a big, big problem for Boris Johnson. Um, and I mean, we're, when we're talking about um, by-elections and them, them, them ordinarily being bad for a government, particularly one, particularly for a party that's been in power for, for 11 years, we usually talk about um, by-elections that are close. And that was North Shropshire, where... Um, the Conservative MP Owen Patterson had um, a, a 20, an almost 23,000 majority in 2019. That seat has now fallen to the Lib Dems who have um, over 5,000, major, a majority of over 5,000, and it was a 34.2% swing to the Lib Dems. And this has come after, you know, what has been an incredibly difficult few weeks for, for the Prime Minister, starting with um, the, the resignation of Owen Patterson, he was um, a long-standing MP, very well-known former minister. Um, he, as, as many people will know, he was eventually had to resign because he was found to have repeatedly breached uh, lobbying rules. And on the back of that, the prime minister um, had a big, um, he'd, well, basically the government tried to rip up the rules and um, was forced to, to U-turn, rip up the rules on parliamentary standards and was forced to U-turn. Followed that was just more chaos. We found out about, um, and well, the Daily Mirror has begun to report on um, parties at Downing Street, which appeared to break COVID rules. And then just in the in the last week alone, he he um, uh, suffered the, the worst uh, parliamentary rebellion of his premiership when um, almost 100 MPs voted against some of his COVID measures. So there's big questions for the prime minister this morning. Well, Rachel, we remember the headline from years ago. It, it's the sun what won it. Do you think it's the mirror what won it this time round? Well, I'm incredibly biased on that, on that front, I'm afraid. Um, I, I, this, is, this is a question for, for pollsters and people who will have done more of the research on the ground. But um, we, we have heard that, you know, that this, um, well, it's been, I guess it's been a long standing attack of some of the opposition parties in particular, the Labour Party, this this whole it's one rule for them and another rule for everybody else. And, um, you know, in the last few weeks, the government just seems to have made that point for them again and again. Well, I suppose what we might call party gate was probably the the last gate, one gate too many. I mean, uh, Vincent, were you surprised then about this result? Not really in many ways. I think the Lib Dems have a very good track record in by-elections, had a very good local candidate. She'd worked hard, got involved in a lot of campaigns. But really, it's all about the huge frustration, as Rachel was outlining, with the government. It's a combination of everything, isn't it, really? The parties, the sleaze, um, conceptions about how badly the government's handling elements of 
dealing with um, the uh, increase in Omicron cases. I mean, certainly you just have to talk to anybody in hospitality or the music industry where I now work. And it's such causing such a devastating effect. All these things are feeding into a sort of mood of sort of uh, great unhappiness, really, with the way the government is handling things. So and I think that's reflected in what by-elections quite often are, and this one was as well, which is a really big protest vote, a, a punch in the face of the government. Will these figures be reflected at the next general election in a year or two's time? Definitely not. Will the Conservatives do less well than they did in the last general election? Well, that looks likely. But those things are a, a fair way off yet. So it's a great story for today. It's a really bad news day for the government. But I think once things settle down after Christmas, it'll, be, it'll all be about how the economy goes, what happens to inflation, what happens with the handling of the pandemic. And people will make a judgment next year, probably on, on the sort of the true picture, if you like, the long term view of what this all means. But no doubt, a terrible day for the government today. But it's fair to say by-elections don't really change anything. It's not going to make any difference to the Conservative majority in the House of Parliament. They can basically do what they want to do, except this might possibly change something. It might possibly change the government because the government, the prime minister right now, is there as the leader of the Conservative Party. If the Conservative Party decide that he's becoming a liability, and there's quite a lot of people on both sides of the, of the party are concerned for different reasons, even, that he's not the right man in the right place. And so if there is a change of government within the Conservative Party, that is going to change a lot. Jonathan, is that likely to happen? Well, I think that this isn't just a poll on what uh, voters thought of Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party's performance recently, and, and let's say bad performance in terms of all the various things we know have, have led people to be disappointed in them, even those who may have voted for the current government. Um, and I think that obviously plays an important part. Uh, but also, I think that it's highlighting something else, which is a problem for the Tories, which is that Boris Johnson was he was a choice that people took in a very specific set of circumstances. So at the time, it was Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson. And many people, even traditional Labour voters, voted for Boris Johnson. And similarly, it was at a time when Brexit had been dragging through with Theresa May trying her best, even though she was a Remainer, to get Brexit done, as she put it. And um, I think, in fact, she was Brexit means Brexit, wasn't she? And it was Boris who won on Get Brexit Done. I think that perhaps some of the people that voted for Boris, um, either traditional Tory or traditional Labour voters, did so because they thought he'd get Brexit done. And in a sense, he's moved things on from there uh, with the help of COVID-19. And it's not really something we're talking about that much anymore. So even though North Shropshire was, in fact, a, a leave seat, I think that it's very interesting that in, in terms of Brexit, Boris has really done the work. Uh, it's not to say everything's rosy after Brexit, but he's pushed it through. It's happened. And if he's got nothing else to offer voters except for constant incompetence and constant embarrassment and constant scandal, then it's clear that uh, people will stop voting for the Conservatives. And I think that's a problem that they'll want to try to address, whether that's through a new leader or whether it's by putting Boris really on best behaviour. And, and let's not forget, he does know how to behave when it's time for an election. He, he ran quite a tight ship in his mayor 
general elections and quite a tight ship in the general election in order to get elected. And that's one of his skills is, is performing well in elections. So I think we need to see if he's going to be able to do that a bit more in the second half of, of this term, uh, if he manages to stay in power as the leader of the Conservative Party. Rachel, is he capable of doing that? There's, there is no easy path um, ahead for Boris Johnson, I don't think, in that he, his government faces multiple problems. And, and, and I know we've just heard there that, that um, Brexit is is almost done with, but that's that's not necessarily true. There's still an awful lot of things to work out with um, with the EU in, in, in Northern Ireland. You know, there's still some problems there which will run into next year, we learned today. And beyond that, we've got um, we've seen reports this morning that um, um, Simon Case, the um, the head of the civil service, the cabinet secretary, is it's, it appears he's held some kind of Christmas party in his office as well. And this this is the the person that was supposed to be conducting an independent inquiry into what happened in, with the Downing Street parties. And then beyond that, I think just looking at it from a party political point of view. People talk a lot about coalitions with other parties, but the Conservative Party is like a coalition of, 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 of different parties within the party. You know, it's got some of some of the hardline Brexiteers in there. You've got some of the, the 2019ers who want to see more money spent in, in their constituencies in the, the so-called Red Wall. You know, you've got, if they've got Scottish Conservatives who are um, wondering if, if they may lose their seat because of the Prime Minister's appeal is is so low in north of the border. He's got just so many problems coming down the track. And it's worth saying that we've seen a number of resets after, you know, periods of chaos within Downing Street that um, I, I wonder just, and, and, and everything really depends on whether Conservative MPs are, are beginning to run out of patience or whether they think that, that whether they have faith as, um, as individual groups as to whether the prime minister can still can still do this and can still get grab back his authority well let, let's just focus in for a minute on the vote that happened earlier in the week uh on covid restrictions and the the huge uh tory uh, rebellion against that now we've seen a lot of things since with the the interview with chris witty on exactly what the impact of COVID on the hospitals and the NHS is in terms of cancer and, and other treatments. There is, a, there is a rift now developing specifically between the right wing of the Conservative Party, and these are, after all, the people that put Boris into power in the first place, and with the, the, the scientists on the, on the other hand, and maybe the more moderates on the other hand, and even the Labour Party, as to what we should be doing about this impending huge wave of, of uh, Omicron. This is something which needs to be managed right now. And is Boris able to navigate a way through to managing that in the best interest of the country with the problems that he's got? I, I, th I think that it's one of the things that may be in, in Boris Johnson's favour at the moment is that um, the, the country, when there is a big national crisis, so sometimes we'll be willing to put um, other pressing political concerns to one side to, to make sure that, you know, that, that it's dealt with and that the country is going to be okay and we're going to be able to move forward. And there, there is a, an awful lot of worrying coronavirus news around at the moment. For example, the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, said today that Omicron appears to have um, an R value, um, something above four, which is not like anything that we've, we've had so far. So I think the, the, the booster programme 
maybe something that the the that the prime minister will want to speak about an awful lot in the in the coming days. But uh, Vincent, I mean, obviously, you know, you you've got uh, uh, the hospitality industry's interests at heart here as well. Should we be locking down even? I know it's terrible thought. We're a week away from Christmas, but if the R rate on Omricon is about four, and we've got say four a hundred thousand infections in one day, which is a bit, roughly where we are, that becomes 400,000 in a few days, and that 400,000 becomes 1.4 million or 1.6 million. Uh, should we be doing more, and is this possible? Well, you're right. The scaling up of the numbers is, is, is truly sort of potentially horrifying for what that could mean for the health service and the risk of it being overwhelmed. I mean, the problem the hospitality industry has and the music industry, the theatre industry, is in many ways we have a lockdown in many ways in all but name because despite the mixed messaging and most of the messaging from government including from scientists is be very very cautious about the social events you do ahead of Christmas especially if you want to see family and elderly relatives. Now what that's meant in reality is restaurant owners, theatre venues, music venues have seen cancellations, drop off in attendance, people not coming, uh, no shows I think are running at music gigs at about 27, 28%. Uh, and people are demanding refunds and they're not booking advance tickets. So if you like, you've got many of the worst elements of previous lockdowns, but without the previous support of, from the government in terms of the furlough scheme, other kind of loans, for example, in the music industry and hospitality at the moment, there's a 5% VAT rate. Now that's, uh, it was a 5% VAT rate, it's now 12.5%. Now in April, that's due to go back to 20%. We're very, very keen that that at least stays at 12.5% and ideally reverts back to 5%. The industry needs all sorts of help at the moment because people are sort of listening to a lot of the advice and, and that means they're not going out at what is a crucial time of year for hospitality. I was talking to uh, one venue this week where they were talking about potentially a quarter of their income coming over the next month and that's really what tides them through January and February. Without that income that they're really not going to see, many, many, many businesses will go to the wall. Now we've heard about Chancellor Rishi Sunak being in uh, California on a work-related meeting. He is now talking to businesses and hospitality and music industry, but we really do need some urgent action from him. Otherwise, in the new year, you're going to see an awful lot of businesses that simply won't recover from this. And that's probably the most crucial and pressing problem outside the sort of health impact of the virus that faces society and the government. I mean, otherwise, every town and city is going to lose some of its favourite uh, bars, clubs, venues, um, and entertainment uh, sectors. It's it's really a grim time, and the government's got to get a grip of it. And this problem facing the prime minister uh, on all fronts about his competence just just makes things worse, really. Well, I kind of, I mean, I, it's hard to say, it, but I do kind of feel a bit sorry for Boris on this one because it is such a difficult one. You you make a very clear point about that, and and the, we, of course we can't disagree with you. But the scientists, Chris Whitty and so forth, they'll make a very equally clear point on the threat to the National Health Service. And the right wing of the Conservative Party seems to be blaming Boris for the fact that, that the, the scientists are saying what they're saying. We have not, we have not instituted any kind of lockdown. It's, it's simply that the public are looking at the statistics and thinking, oh my God, I think I won't go to the pub tonight. I mean, is that, Jonathan, I mean, what would you do if you were Boris under these circumstances? Well, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head, really, um, because I think that it, the government seems to be trying to hold this position that after 20 months of this, it's time that 
we stopped setting rules for people and started trying to encourage people to behave according to their own evaluation of risk. And, and in a way, many people have been doing that for a long time. So all of the parties, for example, that were held last Christmas by those in power and those in government, um, they maybe other people also bent rules and broke rules. Um, but of course, when you're in government, you can't do that. You can't be seen to do that. It, it's terrible. And similarly, I, I think that most people wouldn't have taken that level of risk um, for work parties if maybe they would have met a friend or two in the garden if they had one. And that was against the rules. But what they did really flew in the face of all that. So I think that the government is saying now that people should be able to make their own decisions, partly because they really have no authority, morally speaking or ethically speaking, to say otherwise when it's been shown that they are themselves breaking rules all over the place in a way that's quite reckless and irresponsible in terms of spreading the virus. And I think that the the Vincent got it right when he said that if people are making these decisions themselves now, there's no lockdown. The government hasn't made a lockdown. But uh, different industries are suffering and the economy is suffering. And the difference between when they were suffering because the government banned us from doing certain things and now is that the government can shrug its shoulders and say, well, we don't have to support you because people could be coming to your hospitality venues. Uh, they're just choosing not to because of something that's out of our control. And I think that that's perhaps one area that they'll need to look at a bit more closely. Obviously, there's no magic money tree, but certainly there was something that looked quite a bit like it during the first part of the pandemic. And maybe Rishi and Boris will want to try and revisit that uh, particular tree and see if they can do a bit more to help people. But ultimately, we'll all be paying for that in years to come. But we can't stop the public making their own decision based on the information that they have at their fingertips. And if that's what they're doing, it's beyond I, the control of the government I, to, to deal with it. I think that's spot on. And, and I have to say that, you know, I'm one of the most COVID cautious people I know. I'm very careful about going out and gatherings and restaurants and pubs and all of those things. And so I obviously I'm very aware of the sorts of decisions that many people are making. And I think that as the figures are in the news going up and up, and there's a concerted effort to make us more scared, more cautious, uh, partly because they don't know if a micron is is worse than Delta in terms of the actual illness it causes. They do know that it spreads faster at an alarming rate. Now, if it spreads at that alarming rate and turns out to be let's say, much milder than the previous strains, then I think happy days in a way, because as far as I've understood these things, that'll be the way in which we beat the uh, coronavirus. Because if the main dominant, most infectious uh, variant is one that doesn't do much harm, it will beat all of the other variants for now, and everyone will get through it, let's say. Um, but of course, if it turns out to be damaging and dangerous and deadly, then I think that the alarming spread, that rate of spreads that we're witnessing at the moment is, is something to be terrified of because hospitals will be absolutely overwhelmed and that will have a knock-on effect, not just on treatment of COVID patients, but treatment of everything because the health service will absolutely crumble under that weight. So I think that's what the government is wrestling with at the moment, that balance. Or perhaps, you know, if we'd had more more consistent messaging instead of mixed messaging, we wouldn't be quite at the state we're at. In terms of other countries in, in Europe, they've had uh, masks in supermarket and public transport as a matter of uh, you know everyday life, but we haven't. We have a prime minister who turns up in a hospital where we know everyone has to wear masks, and he's the only person not wearing a mask. So there is a lot of mixed messaging. But if, if that wasn't the only problem for the government, and uh, you know maybe... We've got 
more issues on the horizon. We've got inflation. We've got the the uh, the fact that on, on at the end of January the the Brexit situation ramps up with with all the border checks that are, that have, have been delayed for a year. This is not an easy time uh, for Boris under any circumstances. Vincent, it's not easy, is it? No, absolutely. I mean, as you say, inflation is. Um set to hit potentially 6%, according to the Bank of England this year. There will be big rises in council tax for people. Many other people are facing huge fuel bills. There's the national insurance rise. There's a real cost of living crisis, as the Labour Party rightly refers to it. Uh, and that will really impact on millions and millions of people and their view of the government. And it's very hard to see how the government can get good press and good coverage out of that. I mean, Rishi Sunak did get very good and probably deserved plaudits for things like the furlough scheme, which kept many people from losing their jobs. But next year is going to be even more challenging. And it's very hard to see where that money's coming from. And the NHS will be under even greater pressure. So all these things look like being a fairly sort of miserable year for the government. And more importantly, for everybody else, it's going to be hugely challenging. And yet another sort of problem for Boris Johnson, although I still think the Conservatives are some way from dropping the leader. They're very good at um, getting rid of their leaders when they look as though they won't win. But I think that in the midst of a pandemic, really, they probably now want Boris Johnson to carry that particular can, especially... So, so Rachel, is Boris going to get blamed when people's shopping bills are going up as much as they are uh, in, over the course of the next few months? Um, I think... The, when the economy goes awry, whoever the government is gets gets blamed. You know, I mean, when there was a global banking crisis, the the responsibility um, people looked at who was in in number ten, and it was it was Gordon Brown who had been you know chancellor for 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 the years prior to that. I think I think people probably will look to the government, but I think Vincent was um, uh, hit on a, an interesting point there when it comes to Boris Johnson's future in that. Um, I, I don't think the public will will wear a Conservative Party leadership contest at the height of a pandemic. So I think there's there will be some some months to come. I think before the Prime Minister faces an, an imminent threat to his authority, not least because whoever might replace him um, will not want to be having to shoulder everything that is 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 coalescing around this time in terms of as you refer to in inflation and job losses and this cost of living crisis which is really becoming quite acute now well of course the, the inflation and, and cost of living increase is something which is happening on a on a worldwide basis and uh, joe biden's going to suffer as a result of it in america and his his polling's down as uh, already uh, we're not really focusing in on it because we have these specifically you know, current health issues that, that are the forefront of everybody's thinking but Inflation is is going is going to be a factor, and it does, as you say, rebound on whoever the government is. And poor old Gordon Brown got got blamed for the for the GFC when, in fact, he probably did a huge lot you know, around the world to to try and minimise the impact of it. But unfortunately, that's the world we live in. But Rachel, if if is there a candidate who is standing in the wings uh, if Boris does fall on his sword? I think the the number. Um... Uh, it's it's probably well known that that Rishi Sunak is is considered to be a contender. The the chancellor is known as having a a, a very slick PR operation and um, to have lots of support amongst the the 2019 intake of MPs as well as a lot of 
Brexiteers. I think that um, the Foreign Secretary, Liz Trust, is also regarded as um, as as having ambitions for the job. And then there are some some other backbenchers that have been around quite a while as well and are considered future leaders. If you look to Tom Tugendhat from the um, the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, um, Jeremy Hunt, who um, obviously ran against uh, Boris Johnson at the last uh, Tory leadership election and the former health secretary who's been um, chair of the the health select committee as well and has has been a, a leading voice throughout the the pandemic so yes i think there are a number of, of leadership figures who would who would consider themselves to be in the mix if you had to put your money on one person rachel who would it be um rishi sunak is 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 sort of the the one that people consider to be the the, the leading candidate at the moment, I would say. And you mentioned uh, Jeremy Hunt, who is more, you know, involved with the, considered to be part of the moderate wing of the party, uh, not a hard Brexiter. Uh, can you see the party swinging back to being a more moderate party from being the, the party it became when Boris was elected? It's pretty worth thinking about at this time that, that just just how a Tory leadership election would work. Um, it can be decided by MPs alone, um, depending on on how the rules play out, so you know, it, and it depends what what problem the party thinks that it has to solve at that time. If the if it's if it's complete chaos, you know, people becoming fatigued with Boris Johnson's kind of swinging from one thing to another, being you know quite a dramatic, eye catching figure. If people want you know stability, they might look to somebody like like Jeremy Hunt. But um, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Vincent, who would be your man for the job? Yes, I think... Or lady uh, for the job, I might say, because Liz Truss is certainly there. Well, that's right, and it's amusing to see Liz Truss particularly trying to emulate some of the famous photo opportunities of Margaret Thatcher, who is, of course, still a great heroine of the Conservative Party grassroots. At the end of the day, as Rachel said, that it's a decision not really for the wider public, it is one for the Conservative MPs and potentially the Conservative Party Association. So their views might be very different on any given day than ours. Although I'm always amused with the Conservative Party leadership contest about quite how many people actually think they've got a shot at the title. So what I would definitely say is expect a large number of contenders. And what you will probably see is people trying to run as joint tickets. So where they feel they lead a gap. So for example, if people think it's time for a woman, you might see Rishi Sunak trying to pair up with somebody else and they would run on a joint ticket. I think you'd also perhaps see Michael Gove trying to have another tilt at the top job. And I think a lot of them will try and perhaps pair up and come, come with an offer, if you like, to the electorate and say, we're the right two people for the job and we'll take over. But never underestimate the sort of enthusiasm of the Conservative Party to get rid of their leaders sometimes. You'll see a lot of speculation in the coming weeks about how many letters have gone into the chairman of the Backbench 1922 committee uh, so Graham Brady about uh, getting rid of Boris Johnson. I think 54 letters are needed to trigger a vote of no confidence. Current speculation is there may be as many as 16. It may in reality be far fewer than that. It's a secret, so we'll never know. But all the time, there's always be speculation about how many people have actually said, yes, I want a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson. So that will sort of continue to keep him sort of uh, uh, discombobulated, I think, in the weeks and months ahead. Maybe Jonathan North Shropshire was a a torpedo across the bow, but it didn't quite hit the ship. And uh, you know, we'll we'll learn from what's happened, and we have to focus on the problems we've got to deal with right now. And the Tory Party will rally round Boris until we get out of this particular crisis. 
I don't think that's an impossible scenario. And, and I agree that this probably isn't the moment that the Tory party or the electorate wants a drawn out leadership battle in the Conservative Party. We, we all have much bigger matters to think of, matters of life and death, literally. But also, as you say, with, with uh, inflation, the, the money in our pocket going less far and, and all of these problems that are connected uh, quite largely to COVID and also to the Brexit process. So I, I think that while there are, I agree, plenty of people in the wings, waiting in the wings in the Tory party who, who'd want the top job. And I think Sajid Javid, for example, is one we haven't mentioned, who, who would be a strong candidate too. Um, I think that all of those names may well want to pursue that when the time is right. But I think the other thing that's worth remembering is a lot of this stuff about Boris um, is built into people's evaluation of him. And so I think sometimes um, the Conservative Party itself and uh, to a lesser extent, the electorate forgive an awful lot in Boris Johnson that they wouldn't in any other candidate. I mean, if one were just to write down all of the things that might count against him in terms of disasters and uh, embarrassments um, across his whole political career, you'd assume that such a person could never get to the top. Um, but of course he has, and, and that then when they've got to the top of their party that they could be elected as prime minister, but of course he was. So I think that part of the, the equation has to be that Boris seems to ride these waves of embarrassment and shame uh, almost without any problem. Uh, he shrugs it off and he keeps going, and that sort of blustering, bumbling, messy look is something that he's made his brand. So I suspect that there'll be those in the Conservative Party who still think that there's some value left in him as somebody that can win elections, who can be popular with the electorate. But of course, at the same time, other than just the mess ups, any incumbent at the moment would be probably struggling uh, in public opinion and polling because we're going through a pretty rotten patch. Uh, so is the whole world. And I think it's very easy to blame the government, even for parts of that, that are completely out of their control. And when it comes to this virus, it seems that countries that pursued different policies around the world did well at one time and badly at another. And, and really, it seems to be something that evens out pretty terribly, um, more or less whatever governments have decided to do. Very fair point, actually, Jonathan, that at different times, different countries do appear to be performing better. And then it, it does swing like uh, winning, winning and losing football matches. But finally, the, the debacle in Abu Dhabi and... Uh, how Lewis Hamilton was stripped or not stripped of the uh, championship once again. Vincent, what's your take on it? I found it fascinating. I, mean, I did watch the race um, at the weekend. I felt very sorry for Lewis Hamilton, but it was amazing and fantastic to watch. And it is great to have a new name in terms of Max Verstappen up there. But I think that the really brutal thing for, for now Sir Lewis Hamilton that I thought was dreadful was they effectively changed the rules in the middle of the race to make it more dramatic at the end. Now, his team have appealed, Lewis's team have appealed against this. They've now withdrawn those because there is a wider inquiry. It's, this is at the end of the day, let's not forget, a sport that's become a multi-billion pound sport. So they're pretty good at knowing what their fans want. And I suspect this was more about making the sport and the race and the end of the nail-biting end of the championships more interesting than it was about justice. I don't think you can change the rules midway through uh, the contest, although that does bring into parallels what Boris Johnson and some of the right wing of the Tory party were trying to do to save Owen Paterson when it came to disciplinary action. So it's not a first. So very sorry for Lewis Hamilton. Great in terms of spectator interest, but, but pretty unfair to change the rules midway through, I think. And Jonathan, you, you agree with that? Well, I 
have to admit that I'm not a great Formula One uh, viewer or, or commentator, but I'll certainly say that when, I, when I've seen this in the news, it was very confusing for us outsiders. It seemed like the guy who didn't win thought he should have won uh, when the other guy came first. And it, in the process of looking into it, it all looked very confusing as an outsider. So I don't know how the fans would feel. I'm not one of them, but it certainly seems like changing the rules and having such complications in what effectively should be a question of which car crosses the line first uh, it just makes the whole thing a bit of a joke and and certainly by changing the rules in the middle uh effectively they they do seem to have, have robbed lewis hamilton of, of his rightful win uh, but also i think it does highlight that it's a game of strategy that involves the whole team not just the driver and i think it's a, a good example of, of seeing how it's a bit like a game of chess deciding when to change the tires when to do pit stop exactly how to play things uh, is all part of the game except if the rules are changed then you can't really strategize and i think that seems to me as an outsider to be exactly what's happened here. And, and that's really not cricket, though it isn't cricket. Well, it might not be cricket. It might not be rugby. It might not be football. We can use all kinds of, of other sporting analogies to, to say exact, to say what happened here. But on, a, on another level, Vincent, do you feel that it's done harm to Formula One as a sport, as a spectator sport? Or maybe it's done good in so far as it's brought it onto the front page of the front pages? I think probably a bit of both, hasn't it? I mean, again, I've not followed all the fan reaction, but they seem split. Some are on Lewis's side, some are on Max's side. It's certainly probably when I think it had a few years of interest waning and certainly mine because Lewis Hamilton was so dominant. I think a lot of sort of dip in, dip out fans like myself um, looked elsewhere and, and to other sports. So it's probably done wonders in raising the profile of Formula One, which is what the, the bosses want, but, but not great in terms of, of, of governance. And it's not the only sport at the moment that's got problems with governance. So let's see how it plays out. But, but overall, I'm, I'm a great believer in fairness in sport, and I'm not entirely sure that what happened to Lewis Hamilton was, was fair. No, I, I kind of agree. But every dark cloud has a silver lining, or so we say. So... I think we've nailed it. You've been listening to Right on the Nail with me, Chris Wright. Thank you to my guests, Vincent, Jonathan and Rachel for a great conversation. And thank you to you too for tuning in. Tweet us at Right on the Nail with any suggestions or feedback. And if you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, rightonthenail.fm. And remember, there's a new episode every Friday. So catch you next time on Right on the Nail. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com. Listener.